Have you ever heard of Michael Mennert? What about the Beastie Boys? If you've heard of either of these two artists, then you probably crave beats just like I do. If not, allow me to introduce you to two of the most amazing artists I've ever come across in my life. Welcome to the ninth episode of Uniquity Over Ubiquity, the show that delves deep down into what it takes to be a unique artist rather than becoming a drop in the pool of the masses. I'm your host and creator of the show, Kyle Parker. In this episode, we sat down and talked with Michael Mennert, started out on the first Pretty Lights album, and he's been through a multitude of projects before then also. He tours as Michael Mennert, and then also he has a band called Michael Mennert and the Pretty Fantastics, which is exactly how it sounds, pretty fantastic. The reason I picked Michael for this show is because he is truly one of those people that puts every single last ounce of himself into what he's doing. You can tell that when he gets on stage and when he plays his music, that's the best way he knows how to convey how he feels. He's a very nice person, very open about his life, very open about his process and what he goes through, and If you ever have a chance to check him out, I'd highly recommend it because at some point you're going to feel something whether you came there with that intention or not. I'm just so happy that he sat down to talk with us and I'm even happier about who he decided to talk to us about. He told me he was very inspired by the Beastie Boys growing up and I love the Beastie Boys. I think they're amazing. They they changed the scope of hip hop. For someone like Michael to sit down and talk about a band like this is just amazing. I could talk about Michael all day. Let's go ahead and hear Michael talk about the Beastie Boys. What's up, guys? I'm sitting here with Michael Mennert, one of my favorite artists, one of my favorite people to see live, really puts his soul into it. And I've always enjoyed seeing you. How are you doing today, man? Doing fantastic, man. Home from the road. Hit the road again tomorrow. So I appreciate you doing what you can to get out to the towns that we need to see you in because we love seeing your music, man. Oh, man. I love playing it for people. (laughs) That's awesome. Don't ever stop, please. Whenever I initially asked you about this, you said that you wanted to talk about the Beastie Boys because they were a pretty big inspiration to you. Yep. What was your experience like hearing them for the first time? The first time I heard them was in grade school, I think like fourth or fifth grade. My friend had a Check Your Head tape and we were listening to it in the lunch line. He had like a little Walkman, right? And track two was Funky Boss. And we were like singing along with it. And the principal was in the lunchroom because he's like overseeing everybody. And he thought we were saying, fuck you, boss. No matter how much we try to tell him, he's like, nope, I heard what I heard. It immediately was like a moment from listening to, to music to immediately getting in trouble for it. They stuck with me, you know? That was kind of like, I'm going to keep listening to these guys. Fuck that dude. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's actually what the next question was going to be, too, is what made them stand out to you. And that's kind of the same story that I have for someone like Eminem. Yeah. You know what I mean? And with the first time I heard Eminem, he said, you know, hi, kids, do you like violence? And I was like, what is this? And then he talks about fucking Spice Girls and shit like that. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm growing up right now. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, holy shit, I'm hearing things that I definitely didn't hear before. So that's really cool that that's how you discovered them. And that's also what made you be like, nah, fuck that. I'm listening to this. Yeah. <laughs> they were redefining a sound and making it their own. I'd argue that you were doing the same thing when your career was launching. What was that like for you? And what do you owe it to the most? I would say me and Derek grew up listening to a lot of the same music and kind of showing each other different hip-hop and stuff like that. And Beastie Boys is definitely a common love. But what defined my approach to stuff and our approach, because, I mean, we were working together at that time a lot. You know, we were living together. We were, like, best friends and shit. So it was basically, like, the feeling of going to the record store. And this is back before you could, like, listen to stuff on streaming services or whatever. You know, this is the 90s and stuff. 
so you'd have to like actually buy records. <laughs> like, you know, we lived in Fort Collins, so that wasn't like stocked with hip hop and stuff like that. So you'd have like special order stuff, and you know, we'd go to the record store, and there'd be like certain stuff in certain sections. You know, we'd like some stuff from punk, some stuff from like the indie rock stuff, some of the hip hop, some of the electronic stuff. But I was like, man, I want something from this album, and something from this album, and something from this album, and there wasn't stuff like that. I mean, other than like I'd say the Beastie Boys, because they did, you know, they compiled a lot of their funk stuff into the In Sounds from Way Out which was like a French pressing of just their instrumental kind of funk, soul groove stuff. They could do punk rock. They could do little skits. They could do hip hop. They took you on this ride, and I loved that. They were the first band that let me feel like, all right, you don't have to just be one sound. You can do all these different things, and I think that that's what production allowed me to do. The early days of realizing what sampling was and, and discovering that and buying records and sampling off digital at first before I bought like a record player and an MPC and stuff like that, and just realizing that the beat, it doesn't even have to be 4-4, but the drum beat and the groove of something can universalize music. You know, you can sample country, you can sample classical, you can sample music from any part of the world and give it this groove, and all of a sudden it's like the future of music to me. You know, like it was like all these things could combine to be one thing that somebody could listen to and kind of bob their head to and move to coming up it was just if i want to hear the music that i want to find in these record bins i got to make it myself you know if i want to make this music that fuses different things with the electronic world with synthesizers and electronic production side of it and the hip-hop world with the sampling and the rawness of it and then like the you know the live instrumentation world and the rock world with the singing it's like that i'm gonna have to do that myself you know i can't keep hoping that i'm gonna bump into an album that does that so that was i think how that started for me that's cool, yeah. And I would say the number one reason that someone becomes an artist is because they have this smorgasbord of taste in their mind. And if you are somebody who grew up because your parents were listening to the Beach Boys in the car, but then also your homie on the bus is listening to some dope rap and then all this other things, and then eventually you end up becoming something different because you have all those things blended together that probably would have never gotten together if they weren't in your mind. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know, I think that like the kids that grew up in the 90s and 2000s and even like the 80s, it's like it was the first time when music kind of became really DIY with punk rock and with hip hop and things like that and garage bands and stuff. The recording technology got to the point where you could record at home and make your own stuff for the first time. You didn't have to rent studio time. Even lowrider culture, you know, there was like there was cats that were listening to hip hop and then like the classic soul at the same time. And it was like it was all one and the same. It was all like cruising music. And so I think that we all kind of grew up in that period where, you know, your parents influences the things that you grew up in from the last generation, things that your parents loved and that you would love kind of led into your own taste. And for me, that was cool because us being Polish, there wasn't a lot of Western music that was getting there when my parents were, were growing up and stuff like that. So it was a little bit of like the Beatles and stuff like that and try to like imitate that or, or use that influence, but then have more of like an Eastern European vibe of it. I wasn't growing up on the same things that kids my age in America were growing up on. I was growing up with Polish versions of it and whatnot. And also my dad was really into kind of like soundscape, synthesizer music, kind of like Jean-Michel Jarre or Klaus Schulze from Tangerine Dream and like Vangelis and like just atmospheric and these like melodies and more about like textures and like dynamics, you know? So like as I was learning about the the side of music that was um, melodic and, and rhythmic, there was also like this kind of like outsider music that was being played that was just weird synthesizer kind of soundscapes, kind of like floating clouds, like you're in a fog of sound. Wow, that's awesome. And for me, you know, like without knowing it, that was a crucial part of, of developing what I wanted to do with music because it was influencing me in a way where I was like, music isn't just playing notes in a scale or writing songs that are like chorus verse chorus. It's also just sounds and textures and tones and how that can make you feel. I think for a lot of people, when they discover like ambient music like that, it's kind of like, oh, this is kind of boring. Whereas I was interested in it because I could hear the nuances and the subtleties of it because I watched my dad listen to it. That's super cool. That's really awesome to have uh, so many different kinds of influences to draw from because, I mean, even something as crazy as the Beastie Boys, but to have all those other things backing it up is just, uh, it, it 
makes sense why I can hear your specific style of music when I listen to you. You know what I mean? The album that you guys worked on in the beginning, Taking Up Your Precious Time, there's certain elements where I'm just like, that's Michael. Like, that's 150% something that Michael would put in, because I could hear that, like, in your later music, you know what I mean? I'm really glad to hear that background. And to me, that's a huge compliment, because you hear it in, like, the lo-fi wave that's happened, where, like, a lot of shit, you're like, this could be any of, like, the drum beat to it. I'm not knocking it, I'm just saying that a lot of production, especially when you're using samples, can turn into people, you know, trying to mimic DJ Premier, or Pete Rock, or Prince Paul, or you know, alchemists, or even more contemporary producers, you know, it can sound very the same because you're using the same ingredient. To me, the biggest compliment is when you can hear an artist in the music, regardless of what they're making. And Beastie Boys is like that, where it's like they can play stuff that's like super mellow and instrumental. They can play stuff that's like punk rock and raw. And they can play like really refined, like super 808 heavy hip hop beats. And it all sounds like them. So the fact that that's translated in any way in my music means the world to me. That's what you want. You know, you want to be able to create a signature that you're not having to force that you're just like, this is what I do. And it sounds like me. Yeah, I can honestly say more often than not, I can tell. And I often ask, I'm like, is this Michael? Because I'm pretty sure (laughs) every once in a while, there'll be like kind of like a flutey or like a wind sound in the back. And I'm like, yeah. I've heard that plenty of times and I love that shit. So yeah, dude, for sure. That's just an honest recollection of how I feel about it. So they started in New York, but eventually they moved to Los Angeles. How much of an impact do you think that had on their career? And what has your location done for your music? I think it had a huge impact. You hear it in their music from License to Ill and then into like Paul's Boutique. License to Ill was very like almost, you know, like old school hip hop, Rick Rubin beats with like very hard hitting and like in your face. It's like, bam, drums and excited lyrics and stuff like that. And then they went and work with the Dust Brothers, that's when they kind of went psychedelic. They were experimenting with acid and stuff like that. Their sound expanded from just being like song, song, song to being like these episodic voyages through the album. I think to me, like, I mean, and granted, I don't know these guys and I've only done like a little bit of like history on their stuff. A big part of what I think changed their sound was when their friend that they played in the band with growing up died. They all kind of like went from working with producers and having other people make their music on Paul's Boutique to then like in Check Your Head being like, no, we could do this. We all play instruments. What the fuck are we doing? You know? Yeah. Why are we hiring anyone? They started playing their instruments again to kind of like get that vibe back to be like, that's how we connected with them, you know? And that's when they started bringing back like their punk rock influence from like the B-A-S-T-A boys, the Cookie Puss single that had like punk rock and then like their first like joke hip hop song. So like, I think that was like what really changed it. And I think coincided with them kind of at the same time when they were going from East Coast to West Coast. It might have been the East to West movement, but I think it might have also been just as much like the loss of a friend and kind of the reevaluation of how it all started for you, you know, and being like, man, we started this playing music. Let's go back to that. And for me, like moving to the West Coast has been amazing. I live out in the woods. I mean, I don't know if you can see. That's really cool. Yeah, it looks like you live in a greenhouse pretty much. (laughs) And it's just I'm in my own zone, you know, Like, like in Denver, I had neighbors and I was always worried about the sound. Late night when you're working on stuff, you just be self-conscious and be like, oh, man, they can definitely hear the sub. And also Denver, you know, it's like a huge party scene. And I had a lot of fun there. But it was just like there was something going on every night and I liked going out. So it was like if I was on the road a lot, I'd come home for a couple of days and like I'd spend at least one of those out on the night. And then it would just like a late night turn into a sleepy day the next day. And it's just I was noticing my energy going more towards distractions rather than, than productivity. And also like because I always had friends going just about every week in Denver, there was someone I knew from somewhere around the country flying in to do a show. So they'd be staying with me or it just became a thing where my house kind of became this cool hub for me and my crew. But it also became a place where like I got less and less done because other people were there and stuff, you know? It's like I realize that now when I've been away from the city and you're laying awake at night and you hear sirens and like noises and like none of those noises are good. The noise of a city, there's a zen to it, but it's also like when you're away from it, you realize how much like that's subconsciously affecting you. You get so much 
information. You know, like you walk down the street, there's phone numbers to businesses and like logos, words and all this shit that's just subconsciously like soaking into your brain and affecting you. These messages that you're just constantly getting. I don't know. I'm easily influenced, I think. And I like being influenced by trees and the sound of the ocean. Denver was also like a scene that was very nurturing to me. People really liked my stuff, but I think that it was almost to a fault where like I could do things in Denver and people loved it and then I'd take it to other places in the country and people didn't get it. You know? Oh, wow. That's interesting. I was kind of living this Petri dish of like electro soul where because I had such support, it was almost like I could do no wrong. <laughs> and, and I think being able to get away from all that and being away from a scene that has a certain sound, it let me kind of explore like just like the Beastie Boys. Did. It's like, well, what do I want to do with music? I want to go back to like the things that got me into it. I want to be inspired by things other than just like this song's gonna hit at a show. I wanna be able to write music that's just like, this is what I need to get out right now. Like from the sea and a lot of the Sloco stuff was where it was just a slowing down of things and be like, this is the kind of beats I wanna write right now. I can still do the banger shit, I'll still rock shows, but there's enough cats having the bass wars and like the fucking anxiety fest rises and huge drops. I think that's cool. And that has its effect, but it's like, I don't want to be in that arms race of who can be loudest. Being in a place like Denver that's huge on the electronic scene, it's like, it's hard to do that. You become just someone making some boring shit to people. <laughs> so yeah, coming out here, it was an untethering from things that I was tied to that let me kind of like find my own orbit again. No, that's a very insightful answer. And that's really crazy. I didn't even think about because I do live in Denver now. And I moved here from Florida, which is not Tampa was also a pretty busy city. So I'm no stranger to city life at all. The older you get, the more you start realizing there's like weird little subtle coincidences and, and little patterns and shit. Like it was crazy, man. Like, you know, I played a show with Robbie Dude in Asheville. I was staying at Rhett's Lake outside of Atlanta. And Robbie Dude was like, yo, I'm going to be in that neighborhood working on some stuff because he like builds decks and shit like that. And he was literally at the house next door to us. So I'm like, yo, the homie's right there. You know, just things like that where you're like, such a weird coincidence. I'm here so rarely and I get to see my friend. He's coming over to smoke after work and shit. And it's right there. The world provides, dude. <laughs> I read a couple of things about them meeting each other and how easily it clicked. What was a point where you met someone and just click with them musically and friendship wise? And how quickly did something awesome result from it? I think I think meeting Derek, like I met him one or two times just in passing really quick. He had just moved to the school that I used to go to and I was going to this IB program. So I was like busting away from the school that I was going to. But I still had all my friends at the old school. And we were both skating at this kid's house, like in this cul-de-sac by my house, where like we were building little ramps and stuff because he had space that we could store in his garage and stuff. So yeah, basically like, we skated together a couple times and we just hit it off. And then one day he brought a bass because he was going to bass lessons. And I was like, oh shit, you play bass? I was like, I play guitar. And then we just started a band that week. And from that point on, I mean, that was in end of eighth grade or early ninth grade. And since then, it's just been like our fates are intertwined. There's those people like that. I had a friend named Ben O'Neill that was on my first album doing the Heart Attack song. And the three of us were really close friends. But there's like those people that like you connect with so much musically. that It's almost like musically they can finish your sentences. That's one of the things I really missed from working with Derek all, all the time was just the fact that like we could bounce things off of each other and you knew the other person was going to add this element that like oh that's what it needed that's so cool it was really easy just to do shit that's what happens when you when you know somebody for like you know 20 years or whatever you become familiar i think that that's why like you know in bands they'll replace someone that isn't a great instrumentalist with really good studio player but the music will get worse it's because like the connection isn't there anymore like sometimes you don't need someone that can play the guitar better sometimes you need that dude because he has that vibe that just adds that roughness to the sound this is just making me think about the fact that John Frusciante is back with the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And I'm not saying anything about Josh, the guy that was in it before, but like John, dude, John was laying it down with that band in the beginning. So, And then when he came back the first time, songs like Scar Tissue and all that shit, you know, that's those are the two eras that I liked. And it's like those I was listening to Red Hot Chili Peppers. And then when they got other guitars, it wasn't like I was consciously unlistening, but it was like just different. It just didn't hit me, you know, but one of those bands that like I don't listen to that much, but I saw him at Coachella like eight years ago or something like that. And it's like, 
every single song, you're like, oh, that's a hit. Even if you haven't listened to the album, you just sing along with it because it's been around so much. You know, it's like they're honestly one of the most everlasting bands of all time. It just never loses its sound. They were initially called the Young and Useless. How many iterations of musical endeavors did you go through before you found that Michael Menard sound? Oh man, so many. We were called the Freeze in high school, and then I was in a hip hop group called the Apodictic Dialects. Oh my god! And then we had a group called Listen. You sent me an album for Listen. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then at the same time, I was working on a solo album under the name AES. It's called Made in December. It's 33 tracks. It all flows together. It's a rap album. What does AES stand for? Alligator egg sandwich. I don't know. A bunch of stuff, man. I, I wrote a rap that was like applying every spectacle along each step. All expected scrolls aligned even symmetrical. AES, although earthly success abnormally exceeds substance, an entity stresses actually earning something. So every word was AES, AES, AES. Oh my God. So it could really mean anything, apparently, and you were not lying. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Cool. So they talked about getting a tape player from a closing studio and mixing and editing with scotch tape and cassettes. What was your early equipment like and how has it changed since you started? It's actually crazy because I did the digital version of that. There was this program called Cool Edit Pro, and my dad had it on his computer because he was trans transferring old tapes and records through the line in you know he had like a little interface back in like the 90s and he was taking stuff that he had from poland that he couldn't find here pre-internet hotspot days he was getting all this stuff digitalized so i was kind of going through his archives and sampling like polish records and just random cds we had around the house and stuff like that i didn't know you could multi-track on it so i would take like a drum crazy record that had just like drum breaks on it and i would chop up the drums and then i'd be like okay four beats is 2.56 seconds so then I copy that, make empty space, copy it, copy paste, because you can like copy paste stuff on top of itself, the loop on top. So I'd have like these beats that were like timed out just by looking at the measures and be like pieces at the end of the track that I could like take and copy and put into it. And then one day I hit tab and I saw that there was a multi-track with a grid and I was like, I've been doing this for like two years. It's like the hardest way you could possibly do it. <laughs> it was that. And then I was using Cool Edit with this program called Acid Pro 2.0 and then Reason and then Ableton. And then I got an MPC. 2000 XL and like 2001. I basically use like almost every computer platform there was. I used Free Loops for a while. I used Cubase. I used Cakewalk. I used Reason. Fucked around with Logic a little bit, but I didn't really like it. Pro Tools. Taking out your precious time was made in Cool Edit Pro and Ableton. So Derek had Ableton on his computer. I didn't have it on mine. I had a cracked version on like busted ass Windows laptop. I was making stuff on MPC and Cool Edit. Derek was making stuff on MPC and Ableton. That was how it all started. You know, it was tape and CD samples. Finding a loop, copying and pasting it, and making little boom bap hip hop beats without any bass lines. My, how far we have come. Because <laughs> uh, I'm looking at my Ableton push right now, and I'm like, damn. <laughs> like, that sounds... And now you can just be like, now it's all on the key. <laughs> it's already ready for me. That's crazy. I, I respect you for going through that, honestly. You can, like, Google, like, drum break. Drum one-shot libraries, and you can just get shit for free, or you can buy shit for super cheap, or you can get, like, on Splice or the Native instrument sounds. You know, like, so many places you can go to just get content. When we were growing up, it was like you had to find every piece. You know, like, you wanted a drum sound, you needed to find that. There wasn't a place you could download that. So it was, like, I think why, like... I love sampling so much because it was that was the only way to do it. You know, it was like either you record someone in or you find a record with it. That's awesome. And I think that is probably one of the most creative things I've ever seen people do is sampling. Like, it's just so crazy to actually see how it starts and how it ends up. And it was crazy, too, because like I remember I got my MPC. I had friends that had the MPCs growing up and I'd mess around with it. And I was always like pretty good with it to the point where like, I'd go to a homie's house and they'd have like some kind of like janky beats and I'd be like, yo, I brought some records over. Can I make a beat? And like, I'd make something banging and they'd be like, all right, you got to go. I don't have this you can say that on. You know, they get all like salty that I was slowly building things up and like getting synthesizers one at a time. And it's like, 
I think sampling was birthed out of the, the necessity to have sounds that you just couldn't afford to record in. It's like, we didn't know orchestras at the time. Now in the internet, you can find people to play for free. You, know, you can find people like, yeah, man, I'll throw some violin on that. Just give me some credit. Back then it wasn't like that, you know? So it was like, if I wanted a violin sample, I'd go find 101 strings or whatever, you know? Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> that's, that's really awesome though, that you guys were able to create some awesome shit out of that at that time. So Rick Rubin was mentioned in an interview as the guy that pushed the hip hop vibe within the band. Do you have a situation where you're direction was altered by someone else if so how did you circumvent that oh man there was one situation so when we were like 15 Derek and I and a couple of our friends this is already when we were listening to hip-hop but we, we were working part-time at a phone survey company called phone-based research it's like telemarketing basically but you're not selling anything so we call people up on our break there was like a strip mall with like a McDonald's and stuff like that on it one of our breaks there was this dude that just had this trash bag full of like rap tape he's like confiscated from his son and was throwing away because he thought they were a bad influence we basically just like rescued them from the dumpster and it was outcast all these things you know like far side they lost soul artifacts not garrett artifacts but the rap group artifacts and i think that was like a huge thing where all of a sudden it was like man we would have had to spend hundreds of dollars to get this music all of a sudden we have all these tapes that back when we had tape players in our cars the next year when we were driving so like all of a sudden we had this music collection of things that influenced us a lot of east coast and west coast hip-hop you know i didn't have an older brother that listened to hip-hop i'm only child so it was like it was kind of like just handed down to us through a dumpster <laughs> that is so amazing yeah I don't know, like everybody that comes in your life kind of affects it. There was this guy named Spark. Haish Zakim is his real name. This old black dude from Chicago, I think, at the time. Before there was Listen, there was like me and Derek and Corey Eberhardt, who's the first pre-light drummer. He drummed with the Fantastics for a while. And our friend Ben Schroer, Gabe Smith, who was like rapping and stuff like that with us. I was writing graffiti and stuff like that. I had a couple of friends that I wrote with. And we were doing an on-air thing at Radio 1190 in Boulder. I think Derek and Corey were doing it. And they met this guy that was doing this like summit thing where he wanted to get all these musicians together up in the mountains to kind of like make music for a week and like do graffiti and then like take it to like the band shell in Boulder and play it for the public for free and kind of teach kids how to paint and how to play instruments and stuff like that, like over the course of an afternoon. This is before we were a band. We were just kind of jamming in a garage post dropping out of college and we went up there other than us there was like this guy Haish Sakim who like played bass he's an like, older cat long ass gray dreads and shit and he was playing he played bass and guitar and he had like all this sound system with him he lived in a van he was just traveling around the country just making music staying where he could and like crashing with people and like using their shower and kind of sleeping in his van and stuff like that we worked on some songs there which became like the root of the first listen album not the one that you have but one two albums before that afterwards he ended up coming to like the house that most of us lived at and just staying there for like a few months and moving all his gear into the living room and we recorded our first album with his help and he played bass on a couple songs played guitar on a couple songs he was just kind of like the older dude that was just like no no you guys got this man check this out this is easy that's awesome that was like spark was the spark you know he like that was his name he was just a really cool cat you know he's one of those people that just was like he He's been around forever and he was this like mystical figure. He would just say shit, you know, like, like he was like, hey man, you got a timepiece? And I, he'd be like, what, like, you mean like a watch? He's like, nah, man, a timepiece. You got to have something that lets you know what time it is. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> that it, it almost seems like a movie character. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and, and he was just the most chill, just like grounded dude. He, he would keep Contro, like the little orange drink, like the orange zesty kind of like liquor stuff that you mix stuff with in the freezer and every morning he'd like take a little shot of it with a squeezed lemon and just like that was his shit just a really dope interesting character for granted like these memories are like this you know almost 20 years ago now so it's a little bit blurry i might have romanticized it a little bit but like little serendipitous moments this random radio interview led to us going to this thing that like if we hadn't come there wouldn't have been a band and then that made our band start we wouldn't have met that you know it's just like all these things that kind of like domino affected 
Yeah, it's just tangential at that point. Yeah. That's really cool. This is kind of a similar question, but they talk about the early days of breaking into hip hop with Puma suits and looking ridiculous. Was there anything you were doing in the beginning that you look back and realize just wasn't you? Any big changes? Oh, man. Early days of Pretty Light shows, we wore these like Arctic combat suits that were all like white, but then we like like sewed all these like weird like lapels and just weird space alien fucking military suits, gas masks. We used to be like drowning in our own sweat while we were trying to play. Oh my God. <laughs> well, because we were opening for ourselves. So pretty like it would open for listen. Having like dumped the sweat out of the bottom of the gas mask between songs. And then, you know, you'd be like dying and be like, okay, now we got to play two more hours of our real band. Awesome. Now that that's over, let's start all over again. <laughs> it's just so that people didn't see the same people on stage. Yeah, no, for sure. That makes total sense. So it was like Slipknot opening for you guys, basically. <laughs> but yeah, man, it was uh, being a white kid from Colorado and rapping <laughs> growing up. There was definitely a lot of bad content. It's a hard sell, you know? There's definitely a lot of reasons why our parents are like, yeah, maybe you guys should go back to college. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I'm good. <laughs> Eventually it all worked out. It's one of those things that's like, I knew that it would get good. It was just like convincing other people. Yeah, you just had to... Trial and error all day. Yeah. So they used to just record for hours. There would be music and bullshitting combined into like really long tracks, but so much of it is unreleased. Do you ever have plans to release the stuff in the archives or have you moved on? And will we ever hear the unreleased Michael stuff? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I have tons of stuff. I believe it. I mean, the first Pretty Fantastics album was like a bunch of just archive stuff of me that I just basically redid. You know, it was like songs that I'd written on acoustic guitar because I was just like, I was tired of just sampling and like not playing instruments i'd say for every album i've made there's an album and a half that wasn't put out oh my god that's crazy i'm sure it's like that for so many artists too when radiohead did kid a and uh amnesiac they recorded over 100 songs and only like 20 of them went out and like two of them are the same song in different versions of on each album my god that's crazy i'd love to see the dump of whatever you guys experimented with early on and whatever you've experimented with too. The sad part about it is like, you know, with the digital format of like laptops and stuff, a lot of it just gets lost. So there's like, there's things that I have like a burn CD somewhere in my mom's house, you know, where it's like half scratched. And then I have a bunch of stuff, you know, I have like a, a hard drive I built for my MPC that's stocked full of beats I haven't used, you know? So it's like, there's tons of stuff from back in those days. I still find old CDs when I go back and see my mom. Um, I mean, we all have that. I mean, Derek has like, probably like five albums worth of stuff because he's been recording with people, you know, like even though people don't see music coming out under the Pretty Lights moniker, there's a ton of creativity used, you know? There's no way y'all's talent would just stop abruptly. You know what I mean? And your desire to constantly sharpen it either. Yeah, exactly. Right now I'm sitting on 40 unreleased songs and I'm going to whittle down a bunch of stuff this year. And it's just, I mean, the problem is that in today's release climate, it's like people don't have the attention span. I read an article the other day that said that the average goldfish has an eight second attention span. And because of social media, humans now have a seven second attention span. Oh, that's gnarly. And so the album we put out from the sea, it's like you watch the plays and it's like it gets a ton of plays in the first half and then it just tapers off because people like 20 minutes are like, okay, I want something else, you know, no matter what. And I do the same thing when I'm listening to stuff because it's just, it's culture work. You know, it's like, and it's sad. I mean, I started doing this thing where I live rurally on the coast. So there's like no signal for most of my drive into the studio when I work with Mickey and shit like that. So I'll download like two albums on the way down and two albums on the way up and just listen to them straight through. And it's gotten me to listen to music that way again. That's really cool. I've actually been honestly trying to do that lately too. like sit down and listen to a full fucking album because that's just not that's just something I used to do. And now I'm like, oh, man, this artist makes me think of this artist. I want to hear this next artist. Oh, damn. That reminds me of these two songs. We have a buffet of all the music you ever imagined. Now. Subconsciously, like, you know, if you're sitting there and you're like eating one 
one artist's food for a second, you're like, well, I, I can eat all this other stuff. I should try it all. To me, it's sad because a lot of what I loved about albums growing up was that, like the Beastie Boys albums, they'd have these things that like weren't singles, that weren't hits, that like if they weren't in the context of an album, they wouldn't make any fucking sense. That goes out the window now. Me and Elliot Lip were joking about it. Like if Brian Eno were to come out with an album now, if he were to be like discovered now and he went to a record label, he'd be like, that's cool, but what's your social media presence like? It's that kind of thing where it's like the visionaries of yesterday couldn't exist in this climate right now. We have mumble rap and you know, instantaneous pop-up shock music, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Man, it's really funny, too, that you said that stuff about losing things in the digital age because there was this rap that I wrote when I was, like, 19 or 20, and it was on, like, an old Nokia phone. Good luck ever finding that shit ever again. Everybody learns their lesson that one time, especially if you're in a computer-heavy thing and you're like, wow, my whole hard drive is dead. Yeah. I have a song called Summer Love that me and Derek made, and we had, like, three or four songs that we were working on an EP for. That was like, like Summer Love originally I was singing on it before I found the Barbara Mason sample. We were kind of trading back and forth on the beats. Like I'd find some samples, kind of start it and give it to Derek and flesh it out. And then I'd write something for what was on it. This is like when he was doing Passing By Behind Your Eyes, I think. And his hard drive died. Like in the middle of him working on Passing By Behind Your Eyes and in the middle of us kind of starting this like union project. It just derailed it completely all of a sudden, you know? And it was like Summer Love because I had like parts of the session and then I just like redid it and then found the Barbara Mason sample by accident. It was like, I'll finish it up and use it for a live song, you know? But there's things like that that have happened where I'm like, man, there's just it sucks. Even like the masters to dreaming of a bigger life. It's like, I don't have half of those sessions. I remember Twilight Frequency, an album I did with Borm and Deitch, Break Science. Like I was asking for sessions from that. They're like, come on, man. That's like three computers ago. <laughs> it's like, we're all so bad at it. You know, even though hard drives are like, you know, a hundred bucks, 50 bucks now. Dude, it takes work to back your shit up. Also, it's like you back it up, but if you don't collect all and save or if like Ableton 10 versus Ableton 9 is that if I do sample chop stuff where there's individual slices and I collect all and save from 9 to 10, it resets all the markers of every single cut. So my whole fucking chop is gone. Oh, no. A lot of transfers where I was like, cool, save this. And I have a hard drive and I like, took it on the road. I'm like, none of these beats are the same anymore. You know? <laughs> oh, shit. That's fucked up. So there's like things like that that happen where it's like even if you try to be proactive and back up your shit, it's like something's will just be gone you know like certain presets on vsts might not transfer the perfect way just fucked up shit like that that just gets frustrating because you're like man i tried to do the right thing and i still failed yeah what is this teaching me <laughs> losing adam was a tough blow for them and also so early if you experienced that kind of loss musically and i'm sorry if you have would you continue the music without that person or lay it to rest with them i've lost some friends i've made music with i had a drummer named marshall rolling van stone that was really that was really good that died a little bit after we stopped making music together, but it was definitely one of those things that it's weird, you know, because death is a weird thing, you know? It really is. It's hard to just like stop someone's existence in your mind. You feel grief and you feel lost. It takes a while to be like, fuck, they're gone forever. Oh yeah, no, I'm really never talking to that person again. Like when my dad died, the initial grief was hard, but it was like, I cope with it. And then it wasn't until years later where there was this moments where I was like, fuck, I could really use to talk to my dad right now. You think and you hope like, oh, there's an afterlife, all this shit. At some point you're like, there might not be. Chances are it's just like we all turn into energy and it's not like we go meet up in a fucking park somewhere in heaven, you know? We become stardust. The absolute ending of like the communication and of that person's like existence and growth in your mind is a hard thing, you know? It's also hard to say because it's like the bands I'm in they're pretty fantastic things like that. It's like the lineup has changed so much. And it's been just a growing kind of change. I feel like the music would continue on and it'd be a tribute to them. But it's hard to imagine somebody that you love dying. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, who knows? There might be people in my life that I work with that like might make me just be like, you know what? I'm just going to take a break from this shit for a while. Yeah. Like I need, I need to stop. 
Yeah, word. They dealt with not being so well received in the beginning as most new things are. Yeah. Did you ever deal with people not really liking your style early on? Sometimes new is scary for people. How did you press through that? Yeah, man. All the way up until last Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, just the other day that happened. There's some people that are just like, fuck this guy. I feel like it's crazy because when you're younger, like we used to go on tours and play like door deals at bars where people fucking hated us. And there's just like country bars and shit. Like the scene from Blues Brothers. Right, right. They, they got like the chicken wire and they're throwing beer balls through it. Like not quite that bad, but like we were white kids rapping between Colorado and California doing little like DIY tours to make a hundred bucks a night. And now it sounds terrifying to be like, I don't want to do that in front of strangers. But back then it was like, fuck these people. Like, we're going to do our shit. And it's kind of funny because it's like, I feel like the older you get, the, the less, the less you want to like feel that way anymore. I don't want to deal with that shit anymore. You know, it's like, I'll keep doing myself, but I don't want to just keep putting myself out there and like exposing myself to fucking kidney punches. I feel like any music isn't for everybody. And the music I've made is especially not for some people. <laughs> it's also difficult because it's like, I'm influenced by hip hop and by like that kind of tempo and that vibe, funk, hip hop, soul kind of stuff. Right. And to be in a realm that's very like aggressive, very minor feel, bass heavy, like wobbly. When I was coming out, it was like the peak of US dubstep, like at the forefront. That started like becoming a huge thing. And so it's like you're competing with all this stuff and like the fans are used to judging things by how hard it goes, you know? So it's like if you're not going as hard as other people, they're just like, this guy's whack. A lot of times it just sucked because it's like, I remember one year I played Decadence and I played like after Snails. Right. What the fuck am I going to do after Snails? <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> so I got like a couple more questions for you and then I could let you get on your way. I know the question of who inspired an artist is a tough one to answer. What other musicians inspired you that you might have wanted to mention? Oh, man. Frank Zappa, David Bowie, Pink Floyd, definitely Pink Floyd, Tribe Called Quest. Fuck yeah. De La Soul. They also was a huge inspiration because they were doing hip hop and it felt raw, but it wasn't aggressive. It wasn't trying to be street necessarily. It was more like conscious and clever and elevated, you know? It like took you to a higher plane. Even Tribe was like that, you know? Greg Ellis did Frank Zappa on this show and Blockhead did Prince Paul. So these influential artists keep on popping back up. Even cats like DJ Shadow and Blockhead and like RJD2 and Bonobo and stuff like that that were doing things that were like instrumental versions of the music that I liked, you know? I was like, instrumental and, and it told a story and it evolved you know it's like i remember a dj friend of mine broke down the dj shadow album with me and he was like he knew all the samples because he was like a, you know a record head and you know he'd be like oh hear that right there that's just you know you go through the song and be like damn he was like 25 samples on that shit that's crazy so like that made me appreciate it that made me kind of be like all right that's cool like i want to do that i want to strive towards layering things and making it so it's not just like a two-bar loop for five minutes it's like it changes, you know? Yeah, that's super cool. And especially like people like Blockhead that use records because sampling, you can take soul and funk breaks and it's almost hip hop already. You know, you just put a harder drum beat on it or just chop it a certain way and it's like, it's there. Whereas Cat's like a lot of Shadow stuff and like um, Blockhead stuff. Blockhead using like dollar records and stuff, you know, and just finding those little pieces. And that's like kind of what my sampling aesthetic was because I was using like old Polish records where it wasn't based in like funk and soul, you know? It was like just random things where it was like a cool little couple guitar hits. I'm like, that's cool. I could put a drum beat under that, under that and kind of have these elements that have a feel, but it's not the same thing as like what everybody else is trying to do, you know? Right. So if you wanted to introduce someone to the Beastie Boys, what would you tell them to listen to first? I would say, I mean, Ill Communication. It's like before they were with Mixmaster Mike, and it's like their second album that they did where they were like sampling and playing themselves. That and Check Your Head to me are like my favorite era of Beastie Boys because it's just like it has like the funk song, it has like the affected vocals where they're messing with like different vocal effects. And I think it's just more easily digestible than Paul's Boutique. Paul's Boutique and License to Ill can be a little bit more aggressive on like the first time listener. Right. And then like Hello Nasty and the later albums, like they're good, but they just don't have the same 
you can tell they're getting older, you know, and they're like chilling out a little bit. Whereas Ill Communication and Check Your Head, those two albums are just like them being explosive and then finally having like full control of their music. For sure. That's all the questions that I have related to them. Do you have anything that you want to promote? Yeah. Yo, uh, download whatever music I got. <laughs> awesome. Enough. I got a track coming out called Sorry on a Future Archives compilation. It's like a label that does like Arms and Sleepers and Blockhead and stuff like that. Okay. I mean, I got a bunch of music, but who knows, like, what's going to be an EP or fucking full length. Oh, The Pretty Fantastic's got an EP coming out in summer. Ooh. Check this out. I'm going to show you. People can't see this, but a two-part EP. This is the first part right here. It's like, you know, you're on a little, like, Krongbin vibe, you know, like, summertimey, sunshiny shit. And then the second half of it is this, when, like, all of a sudden you realize you took too much acid and the place is haunted. Oh, shit. <laughs> that is fucking cool, dude. So it's like summer and then fall. That's really cool. Fuck yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this for me, Michael. You're awesome as fuck, and I love you, and I love your music. And much love, man. Thank you for your patience and for giving me a third chance. <laughs> oh, don't worry about it, dude. Thank you so much. Be safe, okay? Oh, yeah, for sure. Peace. And there you have it. I don't think that conversation could have gone any better than it did. Michael is one of those people that just pours himself into every last ounce of his art, even all the way down to this interview. You can just hear him going through his mind and sorting through all the things that he's been through. And it's just so cool to hear where his background led him to and who all he appreciated along the way for those things. This was such a good conversation. I love discussing the artistic process and I also love discussing the path that takes you there because as I was growing up even, it's always been a dream of mine to be an artist of some sort and to see these things happen to me in my life that make an impact on me and then to watch these other people make an impact on me and then to talk to them about what makes an impact on them constantly giving me good directions to go in and I hope it's doing the same things for you. This show is not just my idea it is something that the world needs in my opinion and for Michael to believe in that for Mr. Bill to believe in that for Blockhead to believe in that for Govinda Jordan all those people for them to believe in that it's amazing because capturing these memories is just as important as what happens as a result of them with that being said i really appreciate you tuning in i really appreciate michael for sitting down and talking with me we've conversed many times over the past four or five years that i've been attending festivals and he's always been that nice and he's always been that easy to talk to and i'm so happy that he finally sat down with us and got this done i can't thank him enough and i can't thank his management enough for helping me get in touch with him and if if you guys have any questions or any follow-ups about that, you can always hit us up on Facebook at facebook.com slash uniquity over ubiquity. You can also hit us up on Instagram at uniquity over ubiquity. You can find Michael's music anywhere music is streaming, and you can find him on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and YouTube. His name is spelled M-I-C-H-A-L-M-E-N-E-R-T. And it's spelled so uniquely that you should be able to find them on any of those platforms through that spelling. In regards to the Beastie Boys, if you need help finding their music, then I don't really know what to say for you because they are literally 
everywhere still. And they just recently released a book, which I read a little bit of, and it's amazing. It's called Beastie Boys Book. Two remaining members wrote about the experience of growing up and becoming this band. And then also, they apparently have a documentary made by Spike Jones coming out on April 24th. So be on the lookout for that. I'll also be sure to post all relevant links on the description of this episode. The best way to be able to click those links is through anchor.fm, which should be the main link that I post on Facebook or anywhere else. We are currently streaming on Apple Podcasts, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, Spotify, Stitcher, and Anchor.fm. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. I love you guys so much. Thank you all so much for listening, for believing in this idea. Have a wonderful day. Have a wonderful year. Have a wonderful decade. Have a wonderful life. Goodbye.